I want to welcome you to our gathering today. Uh, glad that you're gathering with us. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead uh, and open them to Esther chapter 8 today. Um, we are going to spend our time working through this chapter. And, and before we dive in, and before we turn there, I, I want to take a moment, I know he's not here, just to thank Jeremy McCowan for leading us uh, last week uh, and walking us through the call to fruitful effort in Second Peter chapter 1. I hope if you were with us, if you haven't listened to that sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Jeremy did a phenomenal job working through that text. But I hope it was not only a time of encouragement, but also a time of empowerment and a a strengthening of the conviction that as followers of Jesus, while we don't produce anything to get on the team, God places us on the team and we are called to be a, a motivated and effective people who are filled with the Spirit of God and living lives that are both aware of God, but also aware of the call that we have to pursue growth as people made in His image, redeemed by His blood, and commissioned to proclaim the gospel to the world around us. Uh, My my hope from that time last week, and even as we uh, launch into our time today and work through the text, is that that, that we would uh, really wrestle or even uh, just pursue what it looks like to uh, step into this reality that we as God's people are to, one, we're to look different than the world around us. But part of that looking different, it's not that we just wear different clothing or, uh, you know, don't do certain things and uh, abide by certain other things, although we should. It's that we would live differently. So we would not only look differently, but that our living would be different. You see, we are called to both. We look different because we are, as Scripture says, new creation, right? The old is gone, the new has come. But in that our our, our living, we are never to be the same. I love what McCowan shared last week because I believe that it's fitting not only for our time in uh, in Esther today, but really the story of Esther as a whole. He, He said this last week, he said, The battle of the Christian life is not to become something we are not, but to step into the reality of who we already are in God's grace. The battle of the Christian life is not to become something we are not, but to step into the reality of who we already are in God's grace. You see, this has been the wrestling of God's people since the fall, has it not? Since the fall, we've been broken and we've been seeking after and running after things that that, that would put us back together, that would make us feel whole again. But what we realize and understand is only Jesus can do that. But when He does that... What we need to realize is that we, we have a new identity. We don't have to be something we not, we're not. We've already tried that. We can actually live into who we really are. I think this has also been the wrestling of God's people throughout this story, specifically in Esther's life, right? And this today is our wrestling, but man, I believe it is a wrestling that is not without hope. For we have the hope of the resurrection and the gift of the Spirit by which we are graciously being transformed more and more into the image of the One whom all glory, honor, and praise belongs to, Jesus. 
And so really quickly, let me just catch us up since we took a break for a week in Esther. Let me catch us up on where we've been. So two weeks ago, we saw um, uh, that, that Esther has been wrestling with the reality of not simply who she is as a Jew, but what she has been called to in such a time as this. And what happened in Esther chapter 7 is that she finds herself before the king and Haman, uh, who she would describe as both an enemy and a foe who has sought to destroy the entire Jewish nation. And so what we see in 7 was that Esther, when met, so she's already had one opportunity. She, she asked the, the, the king, she said, Xerxes, can I hold a feast for you and Haman? And they show up and then he asks, he says, what's your wish? What's your request? I'll grant it. And she says, well, come to another feast because then I'll know you really mean it. And so when met with the second opportunity to have her wish and request granted, Esther wastes no time doing both of those things. She says this, she says, my wish is for my life and my request is for my people. You see, these two things, the wish and the request, are key for our time today because Xerxes in chapter 7 grants her wish and I believe that Xerxes actually thinks that he grants her request and we're going to see that he believes that today in chapter 8 by having Haman spiked on the gallows that he, was, that he had prepared for his enemy Mordecai. You see, because chapter 7 ends with this note that the wrath of the king abated following the destruction and downfall of Haman. But you see, while the king is satisfied with the way things are, what we find is that all is not finished in the story. And so let's look now at Esther chapter 8. We're going to begin with verses 1 and 2. It says this, On that day King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Alright, so as we read that, before we really dive into our time in the text today, I want to present a question for each of us to wrestle with today throughout the entirety of our time in the Word. But also, man, I hope it's a question that we continually wrestle with and come back to and it's this are you satisfied are you satisfied like when you think about your life right now are you satisfied I think generally if you're a follower of Jesus we all have our satisfaction in Christ correct but when we're talking about specifics, like in, in your life, are you satisfied? In your marriage today, are you satisfied with where it is? In, in your singleness, in your parenting, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied in your job? And like where you find yourselves and maybe the goals that you have uh, to take it a little deeper. Are you satisfied today with your walk with Jesus? Today, are you satisfied with maybe, maybe, uh, your, uh, man, your, I'm trying to think of the right word, it's not buy-in, uh, with your, uh, intentionality to pursue and dive into the community that God has called us into, the church? Are you satisfied? 
Are you satisfied in relationships and friendships and in health and well-being and fill in the blank? Are you satisfied today? Now again, on the one hand, in Christ, we should be a people who are at rest. We should be the most restful people on the planet because guess what? The most ultimate thing that, that, that takes away our rest and gives us no rest actually has been taken care of in Jesus. So we are to be people who are at rest, trusting in the finished work of Jesus. For He has done the work that we could not and has given us life that we could not produce. But guess what? As a follower of Jesus, in light of the call we saw last week in 2 Peter chapter 1, are you satisfied or do you want more? Do you want the more that is available to you and before you? Now let me clarify that. I don't mean like more things, okay? I'm not saying like that you're going to get more stuff. That you're going to walk out of here and go to Chase and like you look at your bank balance and it's just going to, there's just going to be more. Like that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the more that I'm talking about is more of Jesus. Be, being formed more into His image. More uh, of His working in your life but also His working through your life. You see, as we think about that question, as we think about this idea of uh, of are we satisfied? You see, my fear, and this is both a fear in my own life and as a follower of Jesus, but uh, as a follower of Jesus, but also as a person who is called to lead people as a pastor, is that, man, if we're honest, we are far too easily satisfied in areas we should not be satisfied in, right? Like I thought about my own life, and for me... My tendency, kind of my bent personality type is, my tendency is to push a little bit and then coast a lot. There was a time I was following Jesus and I, was, I wasn't satisfied or content with my walk with Jesus. And I began to pray. And as I prayed, I was like, God, why do I, I just feel just, just this, uh, I don't feel satisfied in my prayer life and my time in the Word. And man, you just, I began to wrestle and just process. And I felt like the, the Spirit of God was gracious to me in that moment. And, and I just got this kind of word picture of just a camel. And I was like, what's going on here, Right. Um, and as I thought about that, and this, I'm not really, I don't know anything about animal sciences or anything. This might have been just the ignorant stuff I was told in Clifton, Texas in school. But a camel, before it goes on a long journey, drinks a lot of water and it fills up in its hump. That could be wrong. Maybe it's right. I don't know. Uh, and then it goes on its journey, right? But it has all this water stored. And I, as I thought about that in my own walk with Jesus, what I realized is, man, I have this tendency to just, man, just dive in and just consume all of God's words that I can or, you know, listen to worship songs or read books or listen to podcasts. And then what happens is I just try, I just stop. And then I try to let that carry me as long as possible. Anybody feel that? Right? Like some of you, like, you're like, yeah, I'm still, I'm still chewing on seventh grade church camp, right? Like that's it, you know? Uh, but like, I, I, I feel that. Like that's my tendency. And maybe that isn't for you. Maybe you're the other side and you're like, man, I've just got to try to slow down a little bit. Yeah, I think think for all of us, we could agree that that we struggle to, to just be content and satisfied in areas of life when God has called us to so much more. And I think what we need... I think in light of that, what we need is a mentality that goes after and gets after this call of effective fruitfulness that the gospel brings about in our lives. 
The, 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 the best ex- kind of example and expression I could come up with is a sports example. And uh, I told Haley the example last night, and she was like, did you know this? Or did you read this? And I was like, well, I knew it. And she goes, why? So we need what Kobe Bryant effectively coined as the Mamba mentality. When it comes to following Jesus... Now, I want to say up front that I do not market Kobe Bryant as the forerunner of morality, nor do I claim that he should be someone we model our living after. But what I will say is this. Kobe Bryant played basketball with a discipline and intensity both on and off the court that was never satisfied. Like, if you listen to other players talk about Kobe, they'd be like, yeah, I, I decided I was going to show up at 5 a.m. and work out and, and take shots. They were like, I would get there at 4.30 to get ready, and Kobe would be leaving because he had already worked out at 3 a.m. He was never satisfied on and off the court. And the, 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 the best uh, example I found of this in his life was in the 2009 NBA Finals, Lakers versus Magic, the Lakers go up 2-0. In that game, Kobe leads all scorers on his team and he leads in assists. And it looks like, man, it, everything, all lights are pointing to, you're about to get your fourth title. This looks like smooth sailing. I mean, you are playing the Orlando Magic who... They're the magic, right? Uh, and so he, he gets done with the game and he goes to be interviewed. And, and as he sits down, you can see like his demeanor, like he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to talk. He's ready to get out of the room. So much so that, that throughout the interview, finally one reporter says, hey, Kobe, like what's going on, man? He, he says, you're up 2-0, we expect you to come in the room with a big smile. And he says, aren't you happy? You see, what he's doing in that moment is he's saying, hey, Kobe, aren't you just, can't you just be satisfied? And I love Kobe's response. Straight face, like, hey, go check out the video. But he, like, he's almost upset by the question. And he looks at the reporter and he says, what do we have to be happy about? The job's not finished. There's two more games. And then he asks the reporter a question. He says, is the job finished? And before the reporter can answer, he says, no, I don't think so. You see, that's a mentality that's not satisfied. I mean, look, like I'm sat, like if I do 10 push-ups, satisfied, right? I'm done. Like, think about, like, your life, the most sad, like, the most satisfied, and some of those are big moments, right? Like, some of you are like, hey, the day I, I got married, the day I graduated high school, the day I graduated college, when I got that job. Like, you ever had those moments, you're like, it can't get better. So you have those big moments, and then, you know, we have those little moments that just kind of keep us going. One for me was, the, the, I went to Chick-fil-A one time, and as I was walking in the door, I said, Haley, I really wish I could get two chicken sandwiches. And I ordered my food and I sat down in God's providence. I opened up my bag. Guess what? There were two chicken sandwiches in there. I said, the Lord willed it. It's good. Let's go, right? But in that moment, I was content. Like it was, it was more than enough. You see, the reality is it didn't satisfy. I got hungry again. And guess what? We shouldn't be satisfied. Not in the sense that we work ourselves into the ground or are never content with where we are. What I mean by that is we should never be satisfied in the call to give our lives to something bigger than ourselves. You see, this is Esther's life. If you look at the story of Esther up until this point, Esther is up big in the series to anyone looking. And she should be satisfied. 
She's up 3-0. At the beginning of the chapter, Haman's dead. She's given his entire estate as a ransom. And Mordecai is given a position of honor and respect. She should be satisfied. Like she should be happy, right? But look at her response. We're going to read further. I'm going to read verses 3 through 8. It says this. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the, the Agite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agite. The son of Hamadetha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Okay, so what we find is that that even with Haman out of the picture, even with an estate being placed in her name and Mordecai receiving, receiving a position, Esther isn't satisfied. And like, don't miss it. Like, it would have been really easy for her to get comfortable when experiencing the relief she's just experienced uh, after all that's happened in the story, right? She could have easily been just moved on and gotten comfortable or distracted with everything that's been given to her. Not only that, like, you know, she made a wish and a request for her people, right? Like, Mordecai's safe. It would have been really easy for her to say... Hey, my people are safe. My, my people are safe. We'll, we'll worry about the rest of the people later. But Mordecai, he's safe. But she doesn't. Rather, she is bold enough to step up for the sake of others. Because Esther, I believe, understands something that we often forget. And it's this. Her position and place is bigger than her because the story of God's redemption of His people is bigger than her. And again, if we're, far, if we're honest, far too much of our life, far too much of our life is spent believing that we're the center of the story when we're not. Life does not revolve around you. Life does not revolve around me. Life does not revolve around us. And although as followers of Jesus, we have been written into redemption, it is not about us, but about the one who came for us and has called us to live not for the sake of ourselves, but to lay down our lives for others. Just as we see Esther do in this moment. Because you see, her response has immense ramifications for the people of God. And our response to the call that has been placed upon our lives as though redeemed by Christ carries with it eternal ramifications for the lost around us. And so today, are you satisfied? And do you realize this story is bigger than you? But guess what? You're a part of it. And that God has, and that as God's redeemed, we should live our lives for others rather than living for the comfort and satisfaction of self. 
You see, Esther understands that she and Mordecai have been saved, but Esther does not want to be saved alone. Her goal in all this was not to look out for numero uno, but to associate herself with the suffering of God's people. And so while her wish has been granted, her request is not, and so she pleads with the king to fulfill his promise to her. And if you look at the text, and, and, and you see it uh, throughout just the, the, the next part in 9-14, through 14, is the king, uh, the, the sad reality is, is he thinks that he's done enough. You see, Xerxes wants to forget all this and move on as quickly as possible. I think for two reasons. One, he wants to save face, because again, it's all about him, right? He wants to look good doing it, but also he knows that an edict's been made. And what is he going to do about it? Because if he revokes it, he's going to look bad. He's going to look weak. You see, Esther will not be satisfied, and so she boldly pleads for others because she can't stand by and feel relieved while others face death. And again, this is what we as followers of Jesus should take note of in Esther's life and should emulate in our own. Our lives ought to be marked by pleading to God in prayer for the lost and dying around us. And hear this, while Esther pled with a wicked king, we pray to a God who actually loves to save the lost. He loves it so much he sent his son to die for him. You see, in our pleading through prayer, we are to be a people who live from our pleading prayer by proclaiming the gospel of hope to those we are praying for. Guess what? Pray uh, for those around you, but don't just pray. Tell them. Be bold. Guess what the reality is? What are they going to do? Like if you, uh, if you, um, proclaim the gospel to somebody, what's the worst they can say? No. Or some form of it. Now they could reject you. They could strike you. They, I mean, oh, they could kill you. But to live as Christ, to die is what? To die is gain, Paul says. So we plead in prayer. We proclaim the gospel of hope to those we're praying for. And we live lives of willing sacrifice towards others in ways that communicate this better news. Guess what? Pray, 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 but at the end of the day, like, serve, 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 but at the end of the day, you've got to proclaim the good news of the gospel. People will not be saved by your good works, but your good works will give opportunity for you to proclaim to them where salvation is found. I think far too often we're like, well, I just did a whole lot of good things, and, but did you share with them the hope of Jesus? Or did you just do a lot of good things? Our lives should be marked by pleading and proclamation that bears the fruit of willing sacrifice for the sake of others, knowing that satisfaction is only found in Jesus. But again, if we're going to be honest, at times, and even a lot of times, we are far too satisfied with things that don't ultimately matter, and in doing so, we never take the time to share with others. I heard a missionary in... The Middle East say one time, he said, you know, the church in America has, they, they've fallen asleep to Satan's lullaby. That he sings this lullaby over us by saying, hey, you don't have to do anything. It's okay. Shh. 
You need a pacifier? Put the passy in. It's going to, you don't, no, shh, shh. And we spit it out and we say, okay, no, no, no. You, you need to be satisfied with this. You need to look to that. Man, all those other things like build and grow and go after and, and shh, shh, don't, don't really pursue Jesus. And don't tell anyone about him. You see, in doing this, we tend to live more like the king and we're ready to just move on and enjoy life by focusing on things that will never satisfy. And I think we do that in a lot of ways, but one of the ways we do that is that we say, well, you know, even what the king does, the king says, hey, go get the scribes, they'll write it up. And in church culture, a lot of times it's like, well, that's the paid staff's job. They proclaim the gospel. We just show up. But I don't believe that's biblical. My job is to equip and empower and encourage you to go and what? And share the gospel. And so as we sit with that, let's ask this question. As we think about that, like, what if Jesus would have been content and satisfied to live for himself? Timothy Cain had this to say regarding that question. He answers it like this. He said, if you've been saved, it's because Jesus wasn't content to live for himself. If you've been saved, it's because Jesus refused to watch you be destroyed. He suffered and died in your place and then pled before God on your behalf. You and I have been saved, Cain says, because Jesus pled with God on our behalf. In light of this, don't you think we should be a people who plead for others? Like, may we hear that and live the words of Paul in Romans 10, 13-15. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him and who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. To take it a step further, in Matthew 28, Jesus does not say, Most authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, stay in your churches, homes, and comfortable places and share the gospel with a few people, baptizing them in warm water while speaking over them that they're buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. And then teach them to come to church on Sunday. Tell them don't drink, don't chew, and don't hang with those who do. Make sure they don't become too radical and make them feel that since they prayed a prayer, they're now able to live a life of spiritual mediocrity while the lost and dying world around them crumbles. And then he said, Lo, hey, don't worry, I'm going to pull you out of this thing one day. That's not Matthew 28, 18 through 20. No, Jesus comes in Matthew 28 and he says, guess what? All authority is mine. Not just here on earth, but in heaven as well. Therefore, go. An all-encompassing go. If you're a follower of Jesus, your call is to go. Go and do what? Go and make disciples. Well, how do we do that? Well, we plead. We plead for the lost. We proclaim the good news and we sacrifice. He says, as you do that, teach those that come to faith to do the same. You see, our call, just like Esther's, is to not be satisfied with the security we have in Jesus, but to leverage our lives with that security for the sake of others coming to know the hope we have in Jesus.
So we hear all this and then the king responds. And I'm just going to summarize 9 through 14 for the sake of time. Xerxes relents and we see it's begrudgingly in verses 7 and 8. It's almost as he looks at Esther after she's done speaking and he's like, I killed the guy. I gave you a house. Like, what more do you want? But okay, here, if you want that, go do whatever you want. And what we see in 9 through 14 is the edict is reversed. The couriers are sent on swift horses across the entire kingdom to hurriedly herald the king's command. This type of heralding is a picture of the call that King Jesus has given to us who are to hurriedly go and proclaim that Jesus has reversed the curse of death for all who believe. You actually see the same kind of heralding throughout the New Testament. To herald in the New Testament, they, they, when a battle would happen and a war would be fought, at the end of it, if you were victorious, you would send heralds. Uh, the Greek word is euangelion, which is where we get evangelize. And what they would come, a herald would come to proclaim good news. And so they would walk into the city and they would say, Hey, I know you've been worried about this battle, but guess what? It's been won and you're safe. Salvation has come by way of the king. You see, we have good news from and about a way better king. We, we have good news. Like Jesus didn't say, hey, send them and let them tell. No, Jesus came, put on flesh, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve to die, right? That's the gospel. And so may we go swiftly and proclaim the great reversal that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and the grave. And may we not be satisfied until the whole world hears. And so let's close out by looking at the result of this heralding in 15 through 17. It says this. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Okay, so what we find is that the edict is reversed and God's people respond with shouts of rejoicing. They celebrate and they worship. In verses 16 and 17 it says that God's people had light and gladness and joy and honor. They had light that, 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 that term for light there is, is the light of the dawn of a new day. They had gladness because they realized a great redemption had taken place. They had joy that was rooted in who God is and what He has done. And they had honor because they had new standing in community. You see, through Christ, we experience the fullness of these things made reality. For He is the light of the world that shines on our hearts, filling us with gladness and joy for what He has done. And Because what He has done is what we could not have ever done. And He has given us not only a new life, but a new identity and standing in the, the true kingdom. Therefore, we who have been invited into this kingdom of light, gladness, joy, and honor, in turn, we should never be satisfied in, in, in ways that, that turns our hearts from living. Uh, we, we should live out of the good news in, in word and deed to the lost and dying world around us. 
May it never be said of us that we were silent and did not proclaim the hope that rescued and sustains us. What I love at the end of that passage, it says that men, many who were not Jews, became Jews because they feared the Lord. I don't know exactly what that fear was, but I know that, man, uh, that, uh, man, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Man, in our lives, like as we go and proclaim in light and gladness and, 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 and joy and honor because our identity is set in the King, and we're not satisfied with just sitting uh, where we are, that we want to go and proclaim because we've been commanded to and freed up to. Guess what? We see those things. We see others coming to faith and coming to understand what true fear of the Lord is. A fear that realizes, man, uh, apart from the grace of God, I'm wicked and broken. And and man, I'm deserving of death and that's what will come. But there's a hope in the grace that Jesus has come and taken my place so that I might have life. That's what we proclaim. And it's a big deal. I don't know if you've sat back and thought about just the reality that, man, if you're man, a child of God, like you're a part of the greatest story of redemption that's ever been told. The, the, the truest, the only true story of redemption, the only way of salvation. And so how do we respond? Well, first I ask you the question again, are you satisfied? That could be all those generalities that we talked about. Maybe some of that is, man, maybe in, in realizing like a dissatisfaction with where your walk is with Jesus, you, I think oftentimes what we realize is that, man, that affects uh, the, 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 the other areas of our life. So get that one right first. And as you do that, man, as you go along, man, live differently. So what areas of your life do you want to see God redeem, transform, or bear fruit in? Don't be satisfied. Go after that fruitful effort that we talked about last week. Not works-based salvation, but uh, uh, works motivated because of salvation. And then guess what? Like realizing again, like if you've been invited in, live out. Center Church. You've been invited in, live it out. But as you do that, I, I, I want to... Lastly, I encourage you, man, invite others in. Not just to center church. Invite them to Jesus. He's the perfect one. We want them to be here. So we can point them to Jesus. And so this is what I want you to do. Before you leave, I cut up these little pieces of paper. They're by the giving box. Grab one of these pieces of paper and it's got three lines on it. I want you to write down three names of people that you know that need to know Jesus. And I want you to stick it in your Bible, on your mirror in your bathroom, on your car away from the speedometer, uh, or somewhere that's safe. Uh, and I want you to plead, plead for them. Plead for them. But don't just, it also says on here, proclaim to them. Plead for them and proclaim the good news to them. And that can be scary. That can be intimidating. But guess what? The Spirit of God resides in you. And the Spirit loves talking about Jesus. 
Plead and proclaim. Do it in word and in deed. You know, one of the ways as you proclaim, we talked about it earlier, is man, man, begin to just, like, sometimes you show others the good news of Jesus and then you share with them the good news of Jesus. So seek to proclaim in ways that sacrificially serve them. Not as a way to trick them into it, but just to show them, like, hey, the reason I do those things is because of what's been done to me. We've been talking to our kids about each month we have a fruit of the Spirit that we look at, and this is the first month, so it's love. So the first week we we learn about it, the second week we talk about it, and the third week we live it together, and then we wanted them to live it themselves. And and so we were out of town this week, and and I talked to the, the kids about, man, what does it look like to show love to others? And Piper, had, had shared, she shared something that she had done, and you know James, he's like, I don't have anything. And so I said, well, guess what? We're, we're, going, to a, we're going to a play tomorrow. We haven't watched the Esther play. Uh, and we're, we're going to there. Why don't you draw someone a picture, and then we'll write Jesus loves you on it. And you can give it to someone. And man, he got in there, and he, he colored a picture, and I wrote the words down, and he wrote Jesus loves you in his own handwriting. And he, you know, he, uh, two weeks ago, he's struggling with reading. Like, he made it through. There were a few tears, and, and we get through it. And man, he's so excited. We get to the play, and he's, we're about to leave. He's like, I gotta give my letter to somebody. I, I gotta give my picture. I gotta get, and I said, well, just go give it to that guy. It's like, I don't know. It's like, well, you colored it. Just go give it to him. He said, will you come with me? I said, sure, I'll come with you. And so I held his hand and he walked up and he said, here. Gave him the letter or gave him the picture. And I just said, sir, uh, we're trying to teach our kids about love and Jesus' love for others. And so one of the ways they can do that is by, uh, he wants to show you the love of Jesus by giving you this picture. And the guy was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. And gave James a high five. And, you know, James walks out and then he's upset because he doesn't have another picture, right? But that's what happens, right? Like as you begin to plead and proclaim, you begin to realize like, no, like this is good news that I want to share. It's bigger than you. But the reality is it's far more simple than you can imagine. So start small, be faithful, live at rest, but never be satisfied. You see, again, we know how the story ends, but it's not over and we've been called to participate. Let's participate. And so I'm going to have the team come back up. And as they make their way up, I'm going to pray here in a moment. And then uh, I'm going to have Ronnie and uh, Jim come up and do communion. Uh, I didn't tell them this in the beginning, but uh, I'm going to have them come forward. I'm going to pray. And then what we're going to do in remembrance, we're going to remember what Jesus has done, but also we're going to remember what we're called to as followers of Jesus. That as we take this together, we do all of this in remembrance of him. And so I'm going to pray, they're going to come forward, and then you can make your way down the center and go around the side, and then I will lead us in our time in communion and we'll sing together. Father, may we be the most satisfied people that are never satisfied. May we be so deeply satisfied in you and you alone. That as we look at the call that we have on our lives to, to, to plead and proclaim, to go and to make disciples and, and God to see all of life 
That's this beautiful reality that, that you want to do something in us, but also you want to do something through us. And, and, and God, that we have so much to grow in. We have so much to learn because God, you are an infinite God and we will never stop learning about you. For all eternity, we will learn and grow in our understanding of your love and grace. But God, now, wherever we find ourselves, may we uh, just simply take that and proclaim it to others. The good news that you took our place. When we deserve death, you bring life. And so God, I pray for those that will be written on these cards, Lord, that they would come to faith. That we would take seriously the call to go and proclaim to a lost world around us. Knowing that someone proclaimed this good news to us. And is the hope we live into and live out of. We need you to do it. May we look back in the future and see your grace and how it's transformed lives. Lord, if there's someone in this room that they don't know you today, that they're sitting there and they're realizing, hey, I don't know what it means to follow you, that they would come and they would talk to myself or find one of our partners that they maybe know and just ask questions about what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to have be satisfied but not satisfied? So God, I ask that you would move now. In Jesus' name, amen. If Ronnie and Jim could come forward. What we're going to do now is we're going to participate in communion together. It's something we do each week. If you're a follower of Jesus in good standing with your local church uh, that you're a part of, uh, whether you're a partner here or somewhere else, we want to invite you to come and share in communion with us. Uh, and so you can come forward and you will present it with bread and, and the cup, which is just grape juice. And uh, then you'll make your way to your seat. And as you sit there, uh, we're going to uh, share in this together because we believe we are a community. And this is one of the ways we uh, uh, do life together in community. And today, if you're not a follower of Jesus or maybe you're wrestling and don't, we would ask that you abstain from this simply for the sake of the reality that this is a costly thing that we remember. And we want to take it rightly. But that doesn't, it's not a way to cast you aside. It's a way to, actually, it's a way to say, hey, we want to invite you in, but we want you to know what you're doing. And we want you to know what new life is in Christ. And so I'm going to pray, and then y'all can make your way forward. And once everyone's uh, received the elements and seated, I'll lead us in communion. Jesus, again, we thank you. And as we prepare to share in this remembrance of your body broken and your blood poured out, that we would do so celebrating the good news of the finished work, but also the call that we have in remembering you is to proclaim our remembrance to others. So we take this now in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.